Welcome to Corruption and Child Protection Services. I am your host, David Shore. Number one, for my listeners, thank you very much for your overwhelming response to my last podcast. I really appreciate it. But more importantly, I am glad that you will be using that information because you got to fight back one way or the other. CPS will probably not like you, but guess what? What they did is inexcusable. Speaking of which, I'm going to be going into a few subjects. But we're going to go back to the Act for the Relief of the Poor, 1601. Better known as the Poor Law. Now, the origins of the Old Poor Law extend back into the 15th century with the decline of the monasteries and the breakdown of the medieval social structure. Charity was gradually replaced with a compulsory land tax levied at parish level. In simple language, there were allowing the church to tax you. Isn't that real nice? Well, oh, by the way, the information I am getting, you can get anywhere on the internet. Just put the uh, Act for the Relief of the Poor, 1601. Now, the main points of the 1601 Act. I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that and bore you half to death. But the important, the impotent poor, people who can't work, were to be cared for in alms house or a poorhouse. The law offered relief to people who were unable to work mainly those who were lame, impotent, old, or blind. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to read that last part to you. It was mainly those who were lame, impotent, old, or blind. Impotency? In other words, you can't get it up, so you couldn't work? You mean to tell me that they use that excuse as why they couldn't work? How many of you ladies have been told that? I'm impotent. I can't get it up. Now I know you're going to say, don't be so mean to the men who are impotent. Well, excuse me, but if you're going to use that in 1601 as an excuse, impotency... As a reason why you can't work. Hopefully they weren't meaning the sexual impotency. Because if they were, I don't know if there's any other kind of impotency. Let's continue with the main points. The able-bodied poor were to be set to work in a house of industry. Materials were to be provided for the poor to be set to work. Sounds like the uh, New Deal. Sounds like something that uh, Roosevelt did during the Depression era and World War II. 
the idle, poor, and vagrants were to be sent to a house of correction or even prison. In other words, hey, you're poor? Okay, you're under arrest. You're going to jail or you're going to prison. Doesn't matter uh, that you can't get a job or anything. Or if you're able to get a job, how come you're not getting off your lazy fat ass and actually getting a job? Pauper children would become apprentices. Oh, so in other words, they were training them for a job, not having them in school or anything. That would actually be a smart thing. You know, reading, writing, arithmetic. Nah, train them how uh, to be a street sweeper or something. Now, the description relief under the old poor law could take on one of two forms. Indoor relief, relief inside a workhouse, or outdoor relief, relief in a form outside a workhouse. This could come in the form of money, food, or even clothing. As the cost of building the different workhouses was great, outdoor relief continued to be the main form of relief in this period. Outdoor relief, better known as construction. Carpentry. Relief for those too ill or too old to work, the so-called impotent poor. Ah, that's where impotent comes from. They were too ill or too old to work. It wasn't because they couldn't get their you-know-what up. Was in the form of a payment or items of food, the parish loaf, or clothing also known as outdoor relief. So, they were providing food, clothing, they gave them money. Some aged people might be, aged people might be accommodated in parish alms houses, though these were usually private charitable institutions. Meanwhile, able-bodied beggars who had refused work were often placed in houses of correction and or relief, you know, panhandlers. However, provision for the many able-bodied poor in the workhouse, which provided accommodation at the same time as work, was relatively unusual, and most workhouses developed later. The 1601 law said that poor parents and children were responsible for each other. Elderly parents would live with their children. Wow, so in other words, they were trying to keep families together. I'm learning something with you. The 1601 poor law could be described as parochial, as the administrative unit of the system was the parish. In other words, the church. There were around 1,500 such parishes based upon the area around a parish church. The, this system allowed greater sensitivity towards paupers, but also made tyrannical behavior from overseers possible. Overseers of the poor would know their paupers and so be able to differentiate between the deserving and undeserving poor. So in other words, they were deciding who deserved help and who didn't. You starting to see a pattern of what's going on today versus what's going on then? Is there a difference? The Elizabethan 
core law operated at a time when the population was small enough for everyone to know everyone else. So people's curriculum circumstances would be known and the idle poor would be unable to claim on the parish's poor rate. Well, that makes sense. The population was smaller then. So you couldn't say, you know, I can't find a job. No one's hiring. And the parish would say, you know something, I know that John, who owns the bakery, is looking for work. Looking for someone to sweep the floors. You can make money, and also I can put you up someplace. The act levied a poor rate on each parish which overseers of the poor were able to collect. So, in other words, you were taxed on whatever money you were making. Those who had to pay this rate were property owners, or rather, in most cases, occupiers, including tenants. So, in other words, you were paying rent. So, I went through this, and I went through it section by section, making sure I did not miss anything. In other words, what they were doing is they were helping people who were poor provide them a house to live, provide them a job, and give them money to live on so the whole act was repealed by section 117 of and part 1 of schedule 14 to the general rate act uh, 1967 now when we come back during that time there was an amendment to the poor act And the long title was An Act for the Amendment and Better Administration of the Laws Relating to the Poor in England and Wales. Yes, that is a mouthful. But when I come back, I will explain that and I will explain how this ties in with Child Protective Services. You will be shocked to hear that a law that was supposed to help the poor actually helped the government take your children, separate husbands from wives, and actually incentivized women to not have to father in the child's life. When we come back, I will go into that and this The Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. We will be right back. And we are back. Now, when I left you, you, my faithful listeners... I stated the amendment for the Poor Act, which is called an act for the amendment and better administration of the laws relating to the poor in England and Wales, or the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. Now, I will tie all this in 
I know you're probably wondering why am I getting a history of this? Because it ties in directly to how CPS originated and how they were able to take the children and how you can use this information and at least state that since the six since sixteen oh one 419 years ago, CPS has been doing this. You can tell your family and friends about this. Now, I don't know if a judge will listen, but I bet others will. Now, the text of the statute as originally enacted. Now, this was from Royal Assent on 14th August, 1834. It reads as follows. The Poor Law Amendment Act, 1834, PLAA, or the Poor Law Amendment Act, known widely as the New Poor Law, was an act of the Parliament of the United Kingdom passed by the Whig government, W-H-I-G, government of Earl Grey. Yes, the T was named after him. At least to my knowledge. Let's get back to this. It completely replaced earlier legislation based on the poor law of 1601. So, for looks like 233 years, the poor law was implemented. And then they came up with this. And it attempted to fundamentally change the poverty relief system in England and Wales. Similar changes were made to the poor law for Scotland in 1845. Wow. Yeah, 1834, and then here it is about 11 years later in Scotland. It resulted from the 1832 Royal Commission into the operation of the poor laws, which included Edwin Chadwick, John Bird Sumner, and Nassau William Sr. Chadwick was dissatisfied with the law that resulted from his report. The act was passed two years after the 1832 Reform Act extended the franchise to middle-class men. Let me read that part again. The act was passed two years after the 1832 Reform Act extended the franchise to middle-class men. Some historians have argued that this was a major factor in the Poor Law Amendment Act being passed. The act has been described as the classic example of the fundamental Whig Benthamite reforming legislation of the period. Its theoretical basis was Thomas Malthus's principle that population increased faster than resources unless checked. The Iron Law of Wages and Jeremy Bentham's doctrine that people did what was pleasant and would tend to claim relief rather than working. Sounds a lot like what the uh, current administration, or at least some Republicans are saying, is that they would rather get an unemployment check than work. Looks like nothing has changed. 
The act was intended to curb the cost of poor relief and address abuses of the old system prevalent in southern agricultural counties by enabling a new system to be brought in under which relief would only be given in workhouses and conditions in workhouses would be such as to deter any but the truly destitute from applying for relief. In other words, you may have a job, but sorry, we're not going to help you. You're literally going to have to be out on your ass before we'll do anything. Sound familiar? The act was passed by large majorities in Parliament, with only a few radicals, such as William Cobbett, voting against. The act was implemented, but the full rigors of the intended system were never applied in northern industrial areas. However, the apprehension that they would be was a contributor to the social unrest of the period. Now, the importance of the poor law declined with the rise of the welfare state in the 20th century. In 1948, the PLAA was repealed by the National Assistance Act 1948, which created the National Assistance Board to act as a residual relief agency. Now, I'm about ready to read you the Royal Commission into the Operation of the Poor Laws, 1832. Mind you, this was at a time when they thought that they were doing right, even though they had money, the rest of the country did not. Alarmed at the cost of poor relief in the Southern Agricultural District of England, where in many areas it has had become a semi-permanent top-up of laborers' wages, the allowance system, roundsman system, or Spean-Hamland system, Parliament had set up a royal commission into the operation of the poor laws. The commission's findings, which had probably been predetermined, were that the old system was badly and expensively run. The commission's recommendations were based on two principles. The first was less eligibility. Conditions within workhouses should be made worse than the worst conditions outside of them so that workhouses served as a deterrent and only the neediest would consider entering them. The other was the workhouse test. Relief should only be available in the workhouse. Migration of rural poor to the city to find work was a problem for urban ratepayers under this system, taxpayers in other words, since it raised their poor rates. Oh, taxes on the raised taxes on the poor. Well, that never happens in America, now does it? Sarcasm there. The commission's report recommended sweeping changes. You can just about imagine what those changes were. They're nothing for the people. Now, the part I'm going to read you is something that you will probably be very upset over. So, I'm just... I'm just warning you. It states, 
the separation of man and wife was necessary in order to ensure the proper regulation of workhouses. In practice, most existing workhouses were ill-suited to the new system, characterized by opponents as locking up the poor in poor law bestials. And many poor law unions soon found that they needed a new purpose-built union workhouse. Their purpose being to securely confine large numbers of the lower classes at low cost, they not unnaturally look much like prisons. So in other words, they were looking at imprisoning the poor either way. The new system would be undermined if different unions treated their paupers differently. There should therefore be a central board with powers to specify standards and to enforce those standards. This could not be done directly by Parliament because of the legislative workload that would ensue. This arrangement was simultaneously justified as required to give absolute uniformity countrywide and as allowing regulations to be tailored to local circumstances without taking a parliament's time. In other words, they passed the buck. Mothers of illegitimate children should receive much less support. Poor law authorities should no longer attempt to identify the fathers of illegitimate children and recover the costs of child support from them. So in other words, hey, let's not worry about the dads. If they're gone, they're gone. We're not going to try to track them down and charge child support. For those men that are listening, I bet you wish they had that now. It's this last part before we go to the break. It was argued that penalizing fathers of illegitimate children reinforced pressures for the parents of children conceived out of wedlock to marry and generous payments for illegitimate children indemnified the mother against failure to marry. The effect has been to promote bastardy to make want of chastity on the woman's part the shortest road to obtaining either a husband or a competent maintenance and to encourage extortion and perjury. In other words, this sounds like CPS today. It sounds like reward the mother for not having the father there. They're encouraging that, hey, we'll pay you this, but you can't have the father there. If you, and you have to say that the father has done these things. It appears that that's what they were doing even back then. I know you mothers might be getting mad at me. But I've heard too many stories, even on the internet, seeing YouTube videos of where mothers are encouraged, even extorted to say, hey, look, you have to say this or you're not getting your child back. When we come back, we will go into why this is not 
and has not changed. And why you, the mothers and the fathers, we have to do something. In 1966, they attempted to do just that. When we come back, I'll go into that. And we're back. Now, before I get to what I talked about, I need to bring something to your attention. Now, in 1601, the poor law was put into effect. Now, the rulers were at that time Queen Elizabeth I from 7 September 1533 to 24 March 1603. She was the Queen of England and Ireland from 17 November 1558 until her death on 24 March 1603. So in other words, she was ruling over England and Ireland. She was sometimes called the Virgin Queen because she was never seen with a man, nor was she married, at least to my records. Gloriana, or Good Queen Bess. Queen Elizabeth I was the last of the five monarchs of the House of Tudor. Now, the English rulers from 1603 until the new Poor Act, which, you remember, the original Poor Act was... In 1601, which was passed under her rule, the English rulers were as follows King James I, 1603 to 1625, King Charles I, from 1625 to 1649. And here is where it gets interesting. The Council of State from 1649 to 1653. Now, I'm going to go into that before I continue. And what it says of my information is as follows. The Council of State was appointed by Parliament on 14 and 15 February 1649 with further annual elections. The Council's duties were to act as the executive of the country's government in place of the King and the Privy Council. It was to direct domestic and foreign policy and to ensure the security of the English Commonwealth. Due to the disagreements between the new model army and the weakened parliament, it was dominated by the army. The council held its first meeting on 17 February 1649 with Oliver Cromwell in the chair. This meeting was quite rudimentary. Some 14 members attended, attending barely more than the legal quorum of nine out of the 41 councillors elected by Parliament. Sounds a lot like the Senate. 
the first elected president of the council, appointed on 12 March, was John Bradshaw, who had been the president of the court at the trial of Charles I and the first to sign the king's death warrant. How'd you like to be that guy, huh? Well, we're going to go on. I just thought I would let you know that because I know it was probably shocking to hear, hey, wait a minute. Why does this guy have uh, that kind of authority? And now we know. Well, as we continue, and I do apologize, I've got had wind blowing through. But after the Council of State, Oliver Cromwell, 1653 to 1658. Richard Cromwell, 1658 to 1659. Oh, wow, someone did him in. Well, that's just my opinion. He probably just died of old age or something. Now we go to King Charles II, 1660 to 1685. King James II, 1685 to 1688. King William III, 1689 to 1702. Queen Mary II, 1689 to 1694. Queen Anne, from 1702 to 1714. Now, from here, King George I through the fourth, they ruled, all of them ruled, each one, from 1714 to 1837. That's when Queen Victoria took over. Yes. That's when the new... Poor's Act was under her ruling, remember? As she was under King George I. King George IV. Correction. It was under, it was in 1834. But Queen Victoria did absolutely nothing. She decided to continue it. Now, why would you want to do something like that? Unless you want to keep control over the masses. Well, notice how in 1967 they finally repealed the Poor Act. Well, what I'm about ready to tell you next is something that will open your eyes and realize that CPS is not your friend. And you also see the countries that CPS has control over. What I'm referring to is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations on 19 December 1966. Now, I'm not going to say the countries that ratified it, but I will say the countries that did not ratify it. In other words, they did not sign it. The following countries did not ratify. China, Japan, Thailand, Vietnam, Korea, Mexico, Canada, United Kingdom, United States, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, Ireland, 
Ghana, Nigeria, Afghanistan, the Philippines. There are other countries, but two countries that we say have been violating human rights happens to be Iraq and Iran. Now, Iran does still allow child molestation, even on the highest level. They're still trying to crack down on that. Iraq, on the other hand, with the help of UNICEF, is doing everything they can to prevent that. It is something that is not well known. We really don't talk too much about Iraq anymore. Now, under this covenant, we were supposed to be self have what's called self-determination. Now, self-determination is free choice of one's own acts or states without external compulsion. Now, is the self-determination is defined as the personal decision to do something or think a certain way. Now, principles of self-determination are freedom, authority, support, responsibility, and confirmation. So, if we're supposed to have all that, and especially in the United States, where we're supposed to have all these freedoms, how can we do not have the freedom to raise our own children? Raise them the way we see fit. That the families can't stay together, especially if they're poor. Don't believe that? There is a lawyer down in Brentwood, Tennessee, Connie Regulie. You should really look her up and give her a call. She'll tell you stories of CPS. Now, the state parties to the present covenant. I'd like to read this before I go to my break. Considering that in accordance with the principles proclaimed in the Charter of the United Nations, recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family, inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. That came from the Charter. We in the United States are supposed to have that. Yet CPS likes to say that if we're poor, doesn't matter how clean our houses are. If there are kids being abused, they can be dropped off at a crack house. That's perfectly all right. But if you do something as simple as ground your child, all of a sudden they're telling school, oh, my mommy and daddy are very mean to me. I've heard too many stories of that. The child not realizing that CPS can come in, take them away from mommy and daddy. Now mommy and daddy got to jump through a million damn hoops. And we can thank Queen Elizabeth I and the Poor Laws Act of 1601 and the amendment thereafter. When we come back, I will go into Article 17 and how this applies to why we as parents should be taking care of our children and not the state. We will be back. 
Welcome back to this final segment of the program. Now, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966 and Article 17, Article Paragraph 1, it says, No one shall be subjected to arbitrary or unlawful interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence, nor to unlawful attacks on his honor and reputation. The second paragraph reads, Everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. In other words, you have the right to raise your children. You have the right to make decisions for your children. That's the father as well as the mother. So why is it that the father has no rights, yet the mother has everything? But the mother, if she wants to be with the father, is threatened. She is told if she does not do what CPS says, that they will take the children. Hmm. What about due process? Which the covenant clearly covers. Covers due process. Says that you, just like our constitution, you have a right to due process. You have a right to confront your accuser. You have a right to do a lot of things. Now, a couple things you can check up. On Human Rights Watch, June 23rd of this year, Iran, child protection law, positive but insufficient. On the online DW, November 22nd, 2018, does Iranian law allow for child abuse? Both of them talk about they need reform there. It is worse in countries like Iran. I mean, what do we do? Where do we go? Who can we talk to? Who can we say, hey, look, we need help? Well, we go to the Human Rights Watch, Human Rights Commission, UNICEF. Unfortunately, in the United States, if a man is accused of something, the woman is told he has to stay away. I know a couple. The man, he got mad and stormed out of the house. He did the right thing. CPS got involved because there was a child involved. Two children, in fact. Both children were taken because a woman refused to leave the man. Even though the man said he was going to take anger management classes and he actually took them. But that wasn't enough. What do we tell the men, not just in the United States, but around the world? It's amazing. Countries that didn't sign that covenant 
Many of them are the biggest violators of human rights, rights of the family, rights of children. You can argue with me on that if you want, but you heard the list. This list, you can look online. The International, in fact, I'll give you the name again. You can write it down. International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations on 19 December 1966. And the countries that did not ratify it were as follows. Number one, China. Number two, Japan. Three, Thailand. Four, Vietnam. Five, Korea. Six, Mexico. Seven, Canada. Eight, United Kingdom. Nine, United States. Ten, Saudi Arabia. Eleven, Egypt. Twelve, Israel. Thirteen, Ireland. Fourteen, Ghana. Fifteen, Nigeria. Sixteen, Afghanistan. Seventeen, Philippines. And if you're wondering about Syria, they did. Russia, they did. So, what is that saying? That is saying that these countries, they wanted civil and political rights for the people. As long as they could control those rights. The United States has more freedoms than any country in the world. But as many of us who live in this country know and understand, those rights are only what our government says they are. What about if you're just walking down the street, or let's say you're at a farmer's market, you're child is acting out you do the natural thing you just lightly slap the child on the legs and say you you uh, try to stop the child because if you slap the child on the legs then you get abuse and I understand that you try to stop the child let's say the child is kicking and you do something like try to restrain the child not you know tying them or anything but hold them down and you're the parent you're doing the best you can because there's no owner's manual and you have someone officer comes up he says you know I could have you arrested for that that's child abuse I ask this where's the owner's manual Where's the instructions manual for parents, including new parents? What do we to do? We allow a child to just run all over the place. Then when the child gets injured, do we take responsibility or do we pass the buck on to the store or to the parking lot owner or, you know, the person that just starts opening their car door and the child runs right into the car door? Who takes responsibility? Who is the one that has to take responsibility for that child? Now, 
The smart thing to do is just to tell the child, look, you can't run into the parking lot. You can't run all over the place. And if the child asks why, explain. Because you could get hurt. Someone could be opening their door and you could run right into it. Someone who coming out of the bathroom, they open that door. Let's say the door swings out instead of swings in. And the child gets hit with the door. Who's responsible then? Because if, you, if you've seen any of these bathroom doors, you cannot see any other end. I remember the saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. Nowadays, we cannot do anything. And especially fathers. We lost our rights. We started losing them in 1601. No one did anything. No one tried. And now we're at a point where if our kids do something, especially in teenagers or adults, who's responsible then? Let's say a teenager. Good example, Columbine. Child gets upset because the child's been teased or something. Goes home. Gets an AK-47 or an AR-15 or a shotgun or explosives. He's going to teach them a lesson. The problem is, should we sit down with the child and tell the child, hey, guess what? Yeah, they are going to tease you. You got to rise up to that. When they become teenagers, hitting doesn't work. When they're children, show by example. If CPS seems to think that we're abusing our kids, then let's do everything we can to try an alternative. As for discipline, number one, there's a fine line between discipline and abuse. If you get too angry, step away from the situation. Just have the child go into his or her room. Just until you can cool off. Maybe even just have the child sit on the sofa. Don't turn the TV on. Don't reward bad behavior. Boundaries must be shown. But above all, be the parent. You're not your child's best friend. How many parents were their child's best friend and also were homeschooled and you got a knock at the door from CPS? You didn't abuse your child or anything, but your neighbor doesn't like the fact that you're homeschooling or something. Or you let your child run in your own backyard. Now, all of a sudden, you're a neglectful parent. You're abusive. Father must be doing this or doing that. And they're writing down everything you say. If you caught my last one, you know that that... I know a lawyer will tell you not to do anything that would draw attention.
I know this ending wasn't what you were expecting, but expect the unexpected. You have to remember, you are the parent. CPS is not the parent. State is not the parent. The government is not the parent. You brought that child into the world. Guess what? You raise the child the way you see fit. And also, if you can, read, and it's a long document, but read the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations on 19 December 1966. And if you can, find out from your country, if you're in one of the 17 or more countries that did not ratify this, ask, why not? Kind of notice that the United Kingdom and Ireland are on that list. I thought Queen Elizabeth was supposed to take care of that. After all, well, actually they had Queen Elizabeth I, not the second. I'm sorry. But still. How about Israel? Anyone want to ask Benjamin Netanyahu why they didn't sign this? for civil and political rights. Be good to yourselves. And remember, as a man once said, you have nothing to fear, but fear itself. This is David Shore for Corruption of Child Protective Services.